Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Lars Wikman, and on our panel today we have myself, Josh Adams. Hey! Alex Kutmus. Howdy, howdy. Mika Kalathal. Hello. And Steven Nunez. Hey. And joining us, we have Lucas Larsson. Hello. And John Högberg. Yo. Would you two gentlemen want to introduce yourselves? We can start with you, Lucas. Uh, so my name is Lucas Larsson. I work at the Erlang Orthopedic team at Ericsson. I'm actually a consultant there. So I work for a company called Erlang Solutions. I've been working there at the Orthopedic team at Ericsson for about 10 years now, so since 2010, mainly doing work with the virtual machine, implemented things such as the tracing algorithms, IO polling, work in various areas with the logger, with um, many different things related to Erlang throughout the years. Very cool. How about you, John? Um, I've been working on the Erlang OTP team for the past three years, mainly with the compiler and runtime system. Recently, I've Mostly work with the JIT. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. And for those that aren't familiar with either Ericsson or the Erlang and OTP team, can you give us and our listeners a short introduction to what your team is and what you as a team and part of the organization do like how big is the team and does it mainly do internal Ericsson projects or does it mostly cater to the community what's the deal there so we're roughly about 16 people working at Ericsson and there we've been this size for a long the last 10 years or something like that it used to be a bigger team back in 2000 ish something like that but it's grown smaller over time I would say that we spend I don't know, maybe 50-50 working on internal Ericsson versus open source. We try to kind of make things that are not only interesting for Ericsson, but kind of prioritize either things that are helpful for both the community at large and also Ericsson. They tend to overlap uh, quite often, but then we also do specific internal Ericsson things and we spend a lot of time helping them understand their systems and looking at bugs and different things. So if they have a problem with some SSL thing where it doesn't work, they come to us and ask what, why doesn't it work and why, and then we help them. So we provide internal support for all of the different libraries in there, and a lot of our time is spent on that, but also doing new features such as just-in-time compilers. For example. For example. So can you walk us probably through the story of uh, how then the need for the G- it arose? Was it that you know we kind of hit some kind of performance uh, caps and we needed to kind of push the boundaries of the beam? Or you know, how, does that, how did that come about? Uh, so I think I'll take this one as well, as I've been involved in the project the longest. So the need for, we've been interested in making Erlang run faster always, and that's always something that we work on because some of the internal Ericsson customers 
do want to see be able to run more users on the same hardware, so more mobile equipments on the same hardware, and therefore they need a faster runtime so that they can handle that. And at the moment, the main hurdle is CPU utilization of those nodes for them to run that. In the past, it used to be memory, and that was the, uh, the main problem. Uh, so maybe, and that shifted maybe six, seven years ago. And that's about the same time as we started looking at trying different ways of making things faster by optimizing for doing a just-in-time compiler or just doing basic compiler optimizations of different degrees. So it started a long time ago, and then that's kind of the need. And it's also a kind of, we want to have more users on Alang OTP, and therefore we want, and one of the arguments that have been made that why people doesn't use it as much is that it's not as fast as it, as other technologies and alternatives, and therefore we wanted to take away some of those arguments in there so that we can be a little bit faster and increase adoption in that way. Gotcha. So the Beam itself has three kind of distinct modes. So it's the you know the interpreter mode, hype, for those who are unfamiliar, it's the high-performance Erlang mode, and now the new JIT. So I guess, how do those three modes compare? And what does the JIT have over, you know, let's say, hype in terms of performance and functionality? Okay, so the interpreter is uh, pretty much a classical directly threaded interpreter. You can think of it as a giant switch statement that goes through each each opcode and uh, and runs it. After each instruction, you read the next instruction and then you hop to the right to the right instruction in the giant switch statement. Hype is natively compiled ahead of time. So the Hype compiler compiles a module to native code and then the Erlang system loads it into memory and then executes it directly on the processor, which is quite a lot faster. Unfortunately, it has a few downsides that that the interpreter doesn't really have, such as it's very, very difficult for it to support uh, features like tracing, which we consider to be very important. We've also had a lot of problems with hot code loading. Uh, we recently got that to work a few years ago, I think, but it's always been it's always been quite difficult to work with. So while we got a lot of performance from it, it's been uh, I I hesitate to say more trouble than it's worth, but it's certainly not been easy to deal with. And uh, what the just what the JIT offers us is essentially the the dynamism of the interpreter. We can we can support features like tracing and hot code loading, the embedded debugger with breakpoints and so on and so forth, together with the speed of native code. So, um, yeah. Cool. And then what is uh, what is sort of the future of, of Hype now? I noticed that in the, the keynote, one of the slides had mentioned that Hype code can't be run on OTP24. Are you reading that right? Yeah, Hype is more or less going away in OTP24 unless someone steps up to um, maintain it. Yeah, we've been looking for maintainers for a, a year now, mostly. We uh, at the OTP team don't have any real incentive to maintain it ourselves. It's an interesting technology and it's pushed a lot of interesting ideas to Erlang. But at the moment, we don't have any incentive to uh, continue maintaining it. So we're looking for if somebody else wants to step in and do maintenance of hype, or if that does not happen, 
eventually it will be phased out out of the products. And right now in the master branch, it does not function at all. So someone needs to kind of start working on the code loading to make it work with both the JIT, the interpreter and the hype together. Gotcha. Is the plan to get hype working before OTP24 gets released? Or is it kind of officially, you know, once, if you, if you need hype, stick on OTP23, else move to OTP24? Yes. Uh, we, have, we have no plans on supporting hype ourselves. Hype is dead. <laughs> Unless someone hype. steps up, that is. Unless someone steps up, yeah. Hype death, hype. No, but to get back to the JIT, then for the people who haven't seen the the very interesting talk at Codebeam, what does the JIT offer? It offers more speed. That's the long and short of it. We we went through um, we went to, through great lengths to ensure that it has the exact same performance characteristics as the interpreter. So if your code is already fast in the interpreter, it will not be slower with the JIT. Some things are going to be less faster, so to speak, than others. But in general, our goal for the JIT was to never be slower. So what the JIT offers is simply your code gets faster and you don't have to do a thing about it. And we've seen performance increases ranging from no change at all on quite large products that I've seen like, okay, so it made no difference to changes in, let's say, 20-30% less CPU utilization of those nodes. So it varies a lot depending on the product. As yet, we have not seen anyone getting worse performance when running it, which is kind of a big goal for us as well, that we don't want things to be slower than they are with the interpreter. Yeah, along those lines, I saw in the PR, it said that RabbitMQ saw a 30 to 50% increase in the number of messages per second it supported. And obviously, I don't, I don't think most applications will see a speed up of that magnitude. But I'm curious what other applications you or other people I know in the PR were mentioning doing profiling, what other what other speedups you've seen? For instance, maybe Erlang Solutions has looked at Mongoose IM. I'm not sure. So yes, we have looked a bit at Mongoose IM. And so far, we've not seen a lot of differences there. They, we haven't looked very deeply at why that is yet. They are very, I've tried to get in contact with them, but they are very, very busy with the big release coming in today or tomorrow or something like that. So after that, it will be... Some we will try. I will try to get in contact with them and see what's happening there. So for Mongoose, it wasn't that big a difference. There we've seen some other applications running that have seen quite a bit of change in compile times. So when you're compiling multi-million line code projects, you can see quite a big difference in the compile time, ranging from anything cutting down from I don't know six seven minutes to four something like that. So quite big chunks of compile time being just cut off. And we see the same things when we try to compile Erlang OTP itself. Seems like there's a lot of really cool things coming in as a result of the JIT. Is there any downsides that we might potentially experience? Not that we know of yet, anyway. More bugs, I suppose, is one thing because it makes things a bit more complicated and that always makes it possible to have more bugs in the system. But besides that, I don't really see any big downsides and we worked really hard not to expose any of them. I just want to revisit that number for RabbitMQ because I can't stop imagining an administrator somewhere who just like, oh, I can turn off half my servers now. I can just remove a third. That's a ridiculous amount of uh, headroom someone just got or will get 
for free when this is released. Also, some of the probably most publicized performance characteristics were, of course, JSON <laughs> encoding and decoding, because that's all we do anyway, at least if you work in the web. And there we actually, I ended up in a Twitter conversation with you and uh, Michal about how that actually sometimes beats a native C implementation, which I thought was interesting, but also has some reasonable probable reasons why. <laughs> Maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, so one, first I'll talk about a bit more about the RabbitMQ things. Uh, there. So one of the interesting things we have seen with performing, doing performing, measuring things with the JIT is that the higher load the system is under, the more you seem to gain from it. So if you're running a system at 40% CPU usage and so on, there tend to not be a lot of increase. But if you're spamming it at 100%, giving it all you get, then you will see quite a bit of difference. So we've seen this in a number of benchmarks, and we don't really know why, but this seems to be something that's happening. So the more load is on the system, the more you will get onto it. And regarding the JSON things, so when you're decoding things in JSON in the NIF, there's a certain API abstraction that you need to work with. And when we bring things into the Allen world, we get rid of that abstraction and that abstraction costs in the NIF. And that is why we can, in some benchmarks, beat C code because of the, the inherent inefficiencies in working with a, the NIF API as such in there. I'll say, though, that in the majority of the benchmarks, the C code does beat the JIT. But there are a couple of ones where it's really nice that the JIT can beat the C code that's written there. And I think it's uh, fair to say that near enough beating it and playing in the same ballpark is a significant improvement for for such a high-level language. Now, I think that's really interesting and also very interesting that this means that some of the code is actually being brought down to the level of a NIF for for certain tighter parts of the of the code. I'm guessing where you actually can translate down to. Uh, to that level and uh, without writing NIFs, which I guess was the escape patch earlier. And my, now you might not need to in the same extent. Yeah, that's, that seems... Uh, go ahead. Part of the point was to also try to make less code into C code in our systems and less people write there. In that same spirit, is there anything we could do as application developers to better leverage the JIT? Like, should we write smaller functions? You know, since those all get compiled together? What, what what kind of techniques can we employ to ensure that our, our uh, applications best leverage the JIT? Well, anything that would have made your uh, code fast before the JIT will also made it, make it fast after the JIT. Like I said earlier, we've spent quite a lot of time ensuring that the JIT has the same performance characteristics as the interpreter. So you shouldn't have to do a thing. I like the sounds of that. Are there any... Uh... Other features that are going to be coming to the JIT in in future OTP releases, or is the JIT kind of kind of done at this point? Well, I think right now we're mostly looking at porting it to other architectures, specifically ARM. Now that Apple has announced that their new MacBooks will uh, run on run ARM, so I, I think that's that's up next for the JIT. After that, we'll we also have a couple of optimization of minor details that we want to work on, but the major work is done. And right now we're kind of focusing on making other things in 
the runtime system and the libraries better rather than the JIT. Yeah, it was a bit of a significant pull request that 182,000 lines added and 8.5 thousand lines removed. So uh, thorough code review on that one, eh? Well, most of those lines actually belong to a library, a library called Asinjit, which we have simply included in the tree. And we, we only use a tiny part of that, actually. And uh, I think the amount of code we have written for the JIT, it weighs around 10,000 lines, maybe a pinch less. So the JIT itself is actually not all that complicated. 10,000 lines does seem more manageable from a maintenance perspective. So I'm, I'm glad for you. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite comparable in size to the interpreter. It's, it's definitely bigger, but not by much. So did you have to fork Asinjit or was it kind of like a, like a drag and drop and now you're maintaining your own version of Asinjit within Erlang OTP? Uh, no, we simply we simply included a version as is, and we will update it as time goes on. We've done that with uh, Perl compatible regex, so it, it's we, we we don't really have any interest in forking it or maintaining it ourselves. We'll, we will simply update to newer versions as they become available. And the maintainer of Asimjit has been really responsive and supportive all over of our efforts so we just drop him a line and then he's like oh is that is that the way it works like that shouldn't be a problem to fix and then the next morning we have a bug fix and we can include it in ours so that's been really good uh, that is really cool jit seems like such a big project i'm i'm wondering how long it took you guys from like inception to completion so this jit is the fourth incarnation of a just-in-time compiler project that I've been involved with. So it's taken a while. The first one was started in, I don't know when it was, 2012. And it's been an ongoing project since then. But all the code and all the ideas of this specific version, incarnation of the JIT that we've merged now, we started prototyping, working on it in January this year. So that's not a long time ago. And then then we kind of had an early prototype working by March-ish, something like that. By that point, it was only me working on it by myself. And then by then, it kind of proved that we could get performance gains by doing this approach. And then after that, we basically rewritten the entire thing after Easter-ish and then worked very hard on it during... Uh, April, May, June, July, and then it was done by end of summer holidays, basically. So that's about the time that we spent. So I would, and we've been maybe three people on working on it. So I think the rough estimate that I've given before is somewhere in the region of six to eight man months that's been spent on working on the code for this. But of course, a lot and lot of experience from previous prototypes that made the development of this a lot faster. So if you want to do something like this yourself, all you have to do is think about it real hard for eight years and then spend six months. Yeah. The problem is getting the right idea and then implementing it is not such a big problem. Can you maybe dive into the technical bits a little bit? How you know how exactly did uh, Asimjit get incorporated into the beam? What uh, you know what kind of steps take place to just in time compile these uh, the, the code? Like, can you dive into that a little bit? Do you want to take that, John, or should I? It's a pretty long 
question, so to speak. <laughs> I, I, I will give it an attempt and see if I can give a, a short enough answer. So when the the JIT kind of kicks in when we're loading code. So when you read the beam files from disk, there's a normally there's a loading step that transforms the code into what's represented in the memory of the virtual machine. So when we're running code, we're executing this format in the interpreter, and that format is not at all what is on disk. There's a lot of transformations being done. Uh, multiple consecutive move instructions, for instance, are merged into one so that we can get a faster interpreter. So there's a lot of optimizations being done by the interpreter. Uh, things like instruction combining is one of the things that we do, and a lot of people optimizations at this point. So the JIT steps in at the same place as the normal interpreter loader would step in, rather than instead of loading code in a opcode format that gets executed by the large switch statement that previous, that John talked about before, we instead load directly into native code. So instead of creating the switch statement, we load x86 assembler into memory and then just execute that directly instead of interpreting as the interpreter does. And that's the basics of it. And that's kind of the why it's so simple, because it just does a translation of the same instructions. Instead of translating them to a piece of memory that then gets interpreted, we translate them to x86 assembler that then gets executed instead. And we do very few optimizations. We do a couple, but not like two, three optimizations to help with things. But besides that, it's a very naive translation. And that translation, just getting rid of the interpreter overhead and using native code directly is what gives us all of the speed up. So in the traditional sense of what you think about when you think about a just-in-time compiler, you think about an optimizing just-in-time compiler that kind of uses profile-guided feedback to see like, okay, this function is called a lot, then we optimize that. We don't do that at all. We just load the code and leave it as is makes it very simple, makes it very easy to maintain this code, and makes it much less bug-prone because we know exactly what the code will look like, all the code, when it's loaded. So we can run our test suites and we don't have to make certain things hot before they are uh, compiled and so on. So it's very simple there, which is one of the advantages. And we don't really plan on making it a lot more complicated because then we will have this problem that we will introduce bugs that are only possible to reproduce at production environments with different kinds of things. Now we can re- get all of the bugs and those in our own testing environment instead. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. That sounds like a very pragmatic approach to to a JIT. From my, from my understanding of a JIT, I was very much thinking about something like PyPy, which I believe has that whole, it needs to heat up, but once it's, <laughs> once it's up and going, it's very, it can have significant performance improvements for Python. But in this case, then it sounds like it sounds like a simpler approach, but that still gets us very close to the metal in terms of performance and a lot closer 
to more native code. And I think that's that's something I really appreciate around Erlang in general and the way that Erlang and the OTP team seems to do things. And that Erlang, as it was invented, was never... It doesn't seem like it was functional out of some fashionability. It's like, it's so fancy to be functional these days. But at the time, it seems like it was made into a functional language because it gave certain guarantees and that allowed Erlang to have certain guarantees and do, in that case, distributed processing and distributed computing in the way it does. How how do you maintain that sort of pragmatic approach where you you don't try to optimize all the way to the bone or you don't try to push everything all the way and actually like okay this is the use the useful point and beyond here we only have uh, diminishing returns or a very long tail that slowly gets slimmer where do you find that, that trade off well, we're a pretty small team. We don't really have the time or resources to spend thousands upon thousands of man hours on optimizing things. So we we have to be pretty careful with what we spend our time on. And that that kind of leads to pragmatism, inevitably. Yeah, we were the Java runtime team for Oracle is also located partly in Stockholm. And we were at their offices a while ago uh, talking to them. And uh, they kind of casually mentioned, yeah, like, yeah, that's our, our garbage collection team that takes care of that. And they were talking about 20, 30 people that were working on that. And we're like, okay, do we have a garbage collection team? No. Do we have a garbage collection guy? No. Do we have anybody working in garbage collection? No, not really. So it's kind of a big difference in scale uh, working with the JVM versus us, where it's like, if somebody, if we need to do something with the GC, we kind of, okay, so who's available at the moment? Okay, and then go learn all the garbage collection things. It's a massive difference in what you can do. And somehow I hear people say much nicer things about the Beam than the JVM. Not to throw the Java janitorial team under the bus. I'm sure they're doing very good garbage collection. Yeah, so I, I had some questions. You've been working on OTP for a while now, definitely like a pre-Elixir land and post-Elixir land. This is an Elixir podcast. I'm wondering if there have been any changes to the OTP roadmap or sort of what is the effect of languages like Elixir had on Erlang and what you build and how you build and what you're sort of concerned about. They obviously do influence us. We take we have a lot of users that use our things that now come from using other languages uh, that are built on top of Beam, and it's uh, we interact a lot with uh, Jose uh, Valim to do uh, various features that we I kind of try to decide should this be something that should be done in the Erlang parts or is it something that will only be Elixir specific. Or is there functionality that is in Elixir that we would like to pull into like Erlang Major, like for instance, the logger work that has been ongoing for, so Elixir has had a kind of sophisticated logger from the beginning, while Erlang had a rudimentary logger that nobody really worked on for a long time. And there was an external third-party component that everybody used called logger, and which is, was great and everybody used that, but then we wanted to have something inside of Erlang OTP. So we pulled 
the best parts as far as we understood it from Lager and from the LXE Lager and put them into the Alang OTP uh, distribution, working together with people from the Elixir community, people that developed Lager and people that have been using these products in production, putting together something that would be useful for everybody. And nowadays, I believe the OTP Lager is used by the Elixir as a as well as being used by lots of different things. And there's even logger backends plugging into the OTP logger. So that's kind of, we try to bring all of the different communities together to create things that we can use there. That's very cool. I know one thing that we, we usually bring up as well is the, there, weren't, there wasn't a native map implementation in Erlang for a long time and recently added it, re- relatively recently to like the inside, the, I guess the life of Erlang. When Elixir was originally built, it had hash dictionaries and then it had a dictionary library and then eventually native maps sort of came. So it's nice to see that, you know, they're both sort of complementing each other. Could you give us any hints as to what uh, might be coming down the road for for the beam? You know, after after the JIT and, uh, you know, let's say after porting the JIT to ARM, can we expect any goodies in uh, 2021? So uh, the JIT is sl- kind of slated to be released OTP24, which is in May. And together with that, we are doing a lot of other things. One of the guys that has also been working with the JIT, Bjorn Gustafsson, is uh, cu- currently working on making error handling, uh, kind of error formats better so that the information you get when calling different functions within uh, the Allen Watch machine you get better information on it. Like, for instance, when you're working with ETS tables, you get information on why a certain uh, call failed instead of it saying just bad argument so that you know which argument it is that failed. So we're working a lot with these kinds of usability features to make things better to work with. That part. So that's one example of the bigger things that I will be coming soon. Can you think of any others we should mention, John? No, I think cannot. Mentioned most of them during CodeBeam. Yeah, there's a we do a presentation on various confidences where our manager Kenneth Lundin does a, there, and we he mentioned most of those that we are working on at the moment. There, we'll see if that has released yet from the conference, and in that case, we can put it in the show notes. I also know that I was probably the only host to attend CodeBeam here because. CodeBeam is a little bit undercover in actually being based out of Sweden, or at least CodeBeam Stockholm or CodeBeam V Virtual. Yeah, this one was the Stockholm one. So I, I know some people completely missed it, but that's where all the fun Erlang stuff is announced and released. But it sounds like uh, Erlang is getting a lot of work on like developer ergonomics, like better error messages. I know there was a language server or someone someone has been working on and released recently and i've seen a few different projects like that that focus more on language like meta language tooling and and that sort of uh, developer experience and i think that's something that erlang has been historically criticized a bit for like you you might need a bit of a pain tolerance for some parts of erlang but on the other hand there's nothing else like it that will give you the guarantees and the capabilities uh, that the Beam and Erlang will. Can you speak to that a bit? Is Do you think that's a deserved reputation or is is it just people who don't like the syntax and should toughen up? 
I don't know if it's a syntax thing really, but the tooling around Alang as such was possibly good 15 years ago. There, at least comparatively to other languages back then, but many, many languages have gotten a lot better with integrating into editors, improving their faults and making everything more ergonomic for users, while we might not have spent as much time on that as we should. They're spending time on other things instead. So yes, there is some deserved criticism, I would say, but it's uh, we're getting better and better and better. And it's also not only up to us at the Island OTP team at Ericsson to solve these issues. And uh, unfortunately, there, there's, it's not always people are not ready to step up to kind of deal with these problems because they are hard and they require a quite very long-term commitment to maintain them. You spoke about the language server, for instance. I know that the Elixir language server has had a lot of problems with uh, being abandoned by developers and so on there. And at the moment, as far as I understand it anyway, the Alang language server is better and more maintained than the Elixir one. Uh, not The Elixir one has gotten a new maintainer, I believe, but oh, is that you? <laughs> but it's there. So it's, yeah. So it needs involvement from the community in order to drive this because we are a relatively small team and we cannot take care of everything. So just saying that it doesn't work and then just complaining and not doing anything about it, especially not committing long-term, like the Rebar 3 team, for instance, as well, has done amazing work there where they've committed to doing these things for five, six years and will do it for a long time in the future. So you need like committed long-term open source people working there. Yeah, when I first got involved in Erlang, all you could really say in terms of editor support was you had some pretty solid Emacs macros. So we're definitely a, a far cry better than that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. To me, it seems like Elixir brought that to attention to some larger extent by bringing more attention to, to Erlang and having that that's slightly more modern tooling. But it's been delightful to see how a lot of that has just shifted into Erlang. It's obvious to me that the team working on Erlang, you guys obviously care about the changes and care about the new interest and are actually taking that on board and working with Jose and other language creators to actually further the beam and further the tooling. And like Hex is a common set of tools now that it supports both Erlang and Elixir and the community can join around a common group of tools. And I I think <laughs> since you don't have a dedicated team for, for your IDE and you don't have a dedicated team for your garbage collector and you don't have a dedicated team for much of anything, you're, a, as you said, a small team. I think it's it's very cool to see these steps being taken forward uh, and damn near feeling the necessity to learn how to actually code in Erlang. Yeah, and it's good that like organizations like the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation are doing work in organizing and bringing the open source contributors that want to help and the companies that want to kind of develop Erlang and make it better, bringing them together and involving them in discussions with Ericsson as well to see what we can, the best things we can do in order to make things better for developers using uh, LMOTP and Elixir and Lua and all the other things that 
run on the beam. And now you will be providing everyone free um, performance wins, which which seems very uh, gracious of you. And I think that's <laughs> it's such an absurd thing that just like the JIT release will will help help everyone's code. And I think it's very good that we have an organization that's actually bankrolling the work of keeping Erlang and moving the hard technical parts forward and maintaining it and sustaining it. I think that's very, very good for both Elixir and Erlang. And I I think you guys deserve a lot of credit for the work that happens behind the scenes that we mostly don't see much of. It's like, yeah, okay, a new OTP release came out. Sweet. Yeah, I love that someone somewhere is giving you money to make my life better. I'm kind of curious. If somebody wants to contribute to Erlang and OTP and and help out in a lot of these open source initiatives, what's the what's the best way to kind of get involved? Do they reach out to you? Do they start attending some uh, some working group meetings? What's the best way to kind of get your foot in the door? I think most contributions we get are people scratching their own itches, so to speak. They've been using Erlang for one reason or another and have encountered a problem or something that can be improved, and then they send us a pull request. But if one wants to get involved, I I think you should look at the working groups in the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation and see if there's anything that interests you. If I recall correctly, I think the calendars are all public, so you can, you can attend as many working group uh, meetings as you would like. Yeah, pretty much. We are also involved in those working groups and have people from our team attending, like the security build, uh, working group. And John here is in the build and tools working group. So we have different people in different places attending these meetings. So we can also bring ideas back and forth through there or through pull requests or Alan questions the mailing list or any other forum, really. Very cool. I feel like I have to ask, is there any use of Elixir within Ericsson that you know of? Or do any of you in the Erlang team use Elixir aside from making sure you don't break it? Not that we know of, I think. No, I don't know of any uses as well. I know that a colleague of ours does the tries to do the advent of code in Elixir every year. So he's been doing that for two, three years or something like that, but nothing more than that, just to know what's happening on the other side of the fence it might be a little bit sensitive to be uh, to be like discarding the ericsson language well inside ericsson i understand it's no it's i think it's more of a question of support you can't really pay anybody that we know of as such to get support for the tools that come there but ericsson does pay us for the support of our tools so i think it would be more of a matter of that but and it's kind of a unique position to be able to pay for support for a tool for a programming language you can't really do it's difficult to do that with python for instance you can't pay guido to get you to fix patches and so on and that certainly is a bit of a unique setup for a company to have well that's about all the time we have i think so we should transition into picks one of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. 
let's see what people have for us. Stephen, do you have any picks for us? I do. I do. So next week will be my first week working at GitHub, working on a very cool product they're, they're spinning up now called Codespaces. As a result, I've managed to like play around a ton with Codespaces, got access to it, and it is really, really cool. It's essentially using Azure Codespaces, which is a feature that's on uh, Microsoft's cloud, but making it available to eventually your repos. So you have a developer, a development environment fully in the browser that you have sudo access on. So go nuts and install all the things you you need. And it's full VS code with key bindings and stuff like that. The more I've been looking at it, the more impressed I've been with, with how it's coming together. So definitely check that out. If you can't, if you haven't already, get on the mailing on the waiting list. And if you have access, I don't know, send me bug reports. I don't know. Let me know what you think. I'm going to regret that so hard. You heard it here. <laughs> if you have issues with GitHub code spaces, reach out to me specifically. Steven underscore Steven Nunes. Get okay, me on Twitter. That's, that's going to be a hard one to beat. Josh, do you have any picks for us? They don't have to be at that level. I have roughly 2.5. None of them are me suggesting you reach out to me for support. So my first one's real controversial. I'm going to pick the Beam. And this is specifically because I'm dealing with a Python project trying to help them optimize something. And they have two independent 100 millisecond calls. And I said, oh, you should just parallelize those things. You have plenty of CPU. And they said, ah, it's, it's like super hard because when we do, there's overhead and we lose more than we gain. And that's a stupid place to live, honestly. And I'm so happy that I don't live there all the time. And then my second one is there's a game called Factoria, which I know I'm super late on this, but it's, it's really fun in a, hey, what if I had a game that felt a lot like refactoring code all the time way? And so anyway, it's fun and you should check it out. And then there's also an open source, uh, sort of like clone of it called shapes.io. And so that's neat just because if you wondered, hey, how could I build this? Uh, you don't have to wonder, you can just go read it. So those are my two picks. Recommending Factorio is a very, very dangerous thing to do. We're playing with fire during this. Yeah, I, just, round. I just messed up productivity. For everyone. Alex, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, sure. I got one pick for today. But before I do that, I definitely want to thank uh, Lucas and John for all their hard work on OTP and Erlang and everybody on the, uh, the team over there, Erickson. Definitely appreciate it. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so my pick for today, hopefully Stephen can help out with this. So it's uh, actually GitHub Actions. I was playing with it yesterday. It was great overall, except it doesn't support YAML anchors. So, Stephen, uh, yeah, if you can get on that, that'd be that'd be great. And I think that's my, Sophie. Uh, you want to definitely reach out to Sophie for that. One. Okay, I'll, I'll bug Sophie in that case. <laughs> yeah, I would I would love YAML anchors so I could stop copy and pasting blocks of uh, of YAML everywhere. So, yeah. Aside from that, I really enjoyed the GitHub Actions. It was pretty slick. That's it. Cool. And Mika, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I have uh, one pick, and it's actually a stun and turn server for those who have, who have worked with WebRTC. Doing that inside of Node and a generic stun and turn server can be kind of painful at times. So it's nice to see an Elixir version. And I, I really hope that it is able to connect with LiveView eventually because that, that is where it would be truly powerful. Yeah, it's just a library called stun. Nice. My pick for this, if this was a draft, this would be a great pick. But anyway, my pick is Bitwalker's GitHub repo because that's where I end up after searching for any solution I need. You probably know him from, I think it's Timex. That's probably his most used thing, but it's like he does lib clusters and swarms and all the, all the weird libraries that you need for Elixir and 
probably Erlang as well. Just look around and you'll end up on the Bitwalker GitHub repo. He's also doing Lumen right now. So, you know, he does everything. But I I was almost frustrated today when I just ended up landing on, on his GitHub for a problem I'd been trying to solve for an hour. And it's like, yeah, okay, he already built that. Cool, cool. He just needs better SEO. Okay. And thank you, Lucas and John, for coming on board. And do you have any picks for us, Lucas? So I would like to give a shout out to a tool that we've used a lot while developing the just-in-time compiler. That's called RR, which is a Mozilla project, which is a record and replay thing for uh, debugging native code. So basically, it's a reverse debugger. So you record a session of when you're running your code, and then you get a seg fault at some point or some error, and then you can go step backwards. So you can step backwards to, until things look nice and then step forwards and step backwards and step forwards. So that's a been an amazing tool and one of the reasons why we can develop just-in-time compilers in the time that we did. Very cool. John, do you have anything you want to share in PICS? Well, I'd like to second RR. It's amazing. And my biggest worry about the ARM part is that we won't have RR starting out. So RR, RR, it's it's really amazing, and it's 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 hard to overstate how good it is. But uh, since uh, Lucas already brought that up, I think um, proper the property testing tool, similar to QuickCheck, it's uh, really cool and uh, lets you write write far better unit tests than would otherwise be possible. Yeah, we've also, found so um, many bugs in the compiler with that one. It's really good. Oh yeah, yeah. I'd also like to point out Fred Haber's property te- book on property testing. It's really quite good. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you. We'll make sure to have links for all of this in the show notes. And thank you, Lucas and Jon, so much for coming on board and uh, talking with us, Weird Elixir folks, about your fantastic virtual machine and the new JIT it will have. And that's all the time we have for today. See you on the next episode of Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.